the perspective here reminds me a, a, a little bit of like, you know, when you're, uh, when you're walking around here on, on terra firma on the ground, uh, you, you have a certain perspective of things. And then when you see an aerial picture of that same area, all of a sudden it puts a lot of things into perspective. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a flatlander um, from Indiana. That's where I grew up. And uh, so when I first started getting into the mountains, um, it, was, uh, it was a little bit confusing trying to figure out my way around because where I grew up, uh, north, south, east, west is pretty straightforward. You see the sunrise, you see the sunset. Uh, all of our roads pretty much follow a checkerboard pattern. So, I mean, everything is pretty straightforward. Uh, then you get in the mountains and... Uh, East is west and north is south, and uh, if you want to go south, you actually have to go north for a while. It's, you know, it's, it kind of plays with your head. And, and so learning my way around the mountains uh, was kind of a challenge. It was a new thing for me. And then moving here, everybody started talking about uh, this creek and that creek, and, and I'm like, well, you know, these are popular creeks around here, you know. You got Evans Creek, and then there's Marble Creek, and, you know, Gold Creek, and and, and then I, 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 as I've spent more time in the mountains, what I began to understand is when you understand drainages, you can much better navigate in the mountains without worrying so much about you know, what, what side of the hill you're on or, or whatnot. If you know what drainage you're in, you, you can kind of figure out where you're at. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to take a different perspective here on Exodus 29. Uh, we're going to figure out what drainage we're in today. We're gonna uh, we're we're gonna just get a, a little bit of an overhead view uh, of what's going on here because there's something extremely valuable um, that that's happening here in Exodus 29, and it's so easy to miss if if we get too focused on uh, what that the particular garment of the priest might have looked like, or or what this particular sacrifice the intricacies of how that was performed. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good stuff to dig into it that far, uh, but we're going to take a little bit bigger picture here. And because we're going to do that, we're actually going to cover all of Exodus 29, but we're going to move through it fairly rapidly, and then I'm going to kind of summarize the different parts of it, and then we're going to look at what, what, is being, what is the main thing here for us to walk away with that we... If we walk away from it with anything from Exodus 29, what is it that we can't miss? So that's the, the way we're going to approach this today. And I'd like to just uh, first start with asking the Lord to direct our steps here. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, we ask that you would, that you would give us your wisdom, that you would give us your understanding, that as you've promised to do, Holy Spirit, you would lead us into all truth, that you would cause our hearts and minds to be a fertile place for the seed of your word to be sown today, uh, that you would produce in us the fruit of, of godliness, goodness, uh, and Christ-likeness. Lord, we, we ask for you just to continue to reveal more of yourself to us, to, uh, to cause um, ourselves to be more surrendered to you, and uh, Lord, for our, our faith to be strengthened and uh, Lord, our confidence in you uh, to be raised. And, and Lord, we, we just thank you so much for giving us your word and for giving us a firm place to stand in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, start in Exodus 29, verse 1. So the, the, the larger view here is that we're in the, in the midst of discussing uh, the layout and construction of the, of the tabernacle, which is the place where God is going to is manifestly make his presence known among his people, communicate with his people, and, and then he's installing priests who are the mediators, the go-betweens between God's people and God. So they're kind of like the messengers, they're also the ones who are going to be performing sacrifices to to uh, help the people atone for their sins. Um, and the priests themselves are not the ones who do the forgiving. They're the ones who bring, bring the people to, and God sort of together. 
God is here, and they're bringing sinners to God. That's kind of their role here. And in Exodus 29, um, this is a discussion here about, about the priests and them being installed into this position. So Exodus 29, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them, uh, bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall uh, take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of, of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate or breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So the priests here are, are being consecrated to service to God. Um, they're being set apart from the general population of the Jews to serve God and serve the people in a, a unique uh, God-appointed uh, God capacity. And, and there's a, uh, a whole ritual here that's going to take place that is intent on um, making sure that everyone understands that that they have been picked chosen by God and that they're being installed by God into this role for his purposes and uh, we'll, we'll work towards what those purposes are um, here as we go along um, but uh, d- to know here that and we covered it previously but consecration means uh, essentially to to set apart um, uh, to sanctify uh, them in, for this particular purpose. Um, and then in, as we get into uh, verse 9 there, um, it, talks, it mentions a, an, another word there. It says, And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever, thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. The, the actual word there has to do with, it, it, it gives the, uh, the meaning of filling their hands. So God's filling their hands with, with uh, this, this role, this task, this calling. Uh, he's installing them here into this place. So he's called them. He's laying out what their job is going to be, what the purpose is. And, and now he's installing them into this role. Um, something uh, probably, uh, f- uh, well, definitely far less uh, sort of ritualistic, but when I was called to be the pastor of this church, one of the things that happened was um, that there was a, a gathering where, where there was an acknowledgement given that, that God had chosen me to be a pastor here. And there was the acknowledgement and the joining together of all those who were present, um, a recognition of that role. And, and so there was prayer and there was worship together and there was just a an acknowledgement of what God was doing there. And so in that way, I was installed into this role. So while I had been called by the church to, to, uh, to fill this role as pastor, there was an installation, a, a sort of filling the hands that, okay, now you're here, this is your role, this is, you, you begin. Um, and, and so the God is, is installing them here, uh, uh, sort of officially, I guess, as these are the men I've chosen to serve as priests. Verse 10, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Now, this is a, a, a means of identifying with the sacrifice. The laying on of their hands with the, the sacrifice is a, a recognition that life is about to be taken and for the sake of their own corruption and sin. And, and so the, there's a, a transference here where as they are laying their hands on the, sac, the, the animal about to be sacrificed, there's a recognition that 
I deserve what this animal is getting. This animal is, is, is giving its life, is dying for my sin. This animal is receiving what I ought to receive. And, and so that's the, the purpose of the placing the hands on the head. Then, verse 11, then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall, take, you shall also take the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the, the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on the top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him and they shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as a priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are uh, holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. The priests through, through this whole ritual uh, are, are being wholly dedicated to the Lord. Um. They are being consecrated to Him in body, mind, heart, and soul. Consider that the sacrifice, there is sacrifice to atone for their sins. Their souls are being consecrated to the Lord. 
Then there was the, the, the garments and the, the blood on their earlobes and, and thumbs and, and big toes um, where we get a picture of their whole body being devoted to the service of God. And then we have the mention of the food offering, which is kind of a, a curious thing, but think of it um, this way. There's a sacrifice being given, and from that sacrifice, then the priests actually uh, have, uh, uh, are to have their portion for what they're going to eat. And it is as if God is inviting them to join with Him in a meal. So out of the sacrifice given to God, they, they are being sustained. They're, they're being invited to eat of that. And so in that invitation is an inclusion of, of really their whole being. God dealing with their sin at the soul level. God dealing with their bodies, that, that they're being set apart in body, but also in mind and heart being invited into fellowshipping with God to know Him. To draw near to him. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. This is uh, 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 became a very important uh, scripture in the life of the Jews, and should be an important scripture in our lives as well. Um, especially uh, what what transpires after this passage, which uh, places on us a responsibility to pass on this knowledge of God to the next generations. Um, and it specifically mentions parents passing this on to their children. But the, the idea is really for the whole community of believers to take seriously passing on the knowledge and understanding of God to the next generation. But here's what Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God wants us to be wholly uh, stepping into every, every part of who we are to be stepping into relationship with Him. And this is reflected in the way that the Lord installs these priests. That it's not just showing up and passing a test so that we know that, hey, their mind is consecrated to God. Uh, in some capacity it's 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 not a uh, just a dedication of their garments uh, putting on some fancy clothes like that does the deal the Lord here is dealing with everything every part of these priests from from the, the the depths of who they are all the way out to the superficial stuff you look at they are being wholly consecrated to him now this is uh uh, it, it even brings to remembrance when uh, uh, the Lord Jesus um, goes to wash the disciples' feet. Remember how Peter responded to that? Whoa, 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 Lord, you're not washing my feet. He says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you're going to have no part of me. And he says, well, then wash all of me, head to toe. The, the Lord wants us to be all in with him. Verse 38, um, let's see, where, where are we? Where did I finish here? Losing my place. Oh, that's because I'm, I'm looking at chapter 28. That's why it doesn't make sense. Get up to speed here. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a, a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. 
So God is consecrating the priest, but he's also consecrating the place, the very place where he will meet with them. This this whole, the tabernacle and and the men who are serving in the tabernacle as the priests of God, uh, the whole thing is just being saturated in a devotion completely throughout it, a devotion to him. Verse 40, 45, here then we get to um, the purpose of all of this. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And this is something that we've heard throughout Exodus. This almost verbatim that the Lord keeps saying this at various intervals throughout Exodus and they, uh, uh, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What is the purpose of the priest being consecrated, the tabernacle being consecrated, the, 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 um, uh, the altar being consecrated. What, it, what is the purpose of all this? This ritual that's taking place over many days, the sacrifices, uh, the garments that are specially designed for the priests, the blood on, on the earlobes and thumbs and, and, and toes. What is all of this about? Verse 45 and 46, get right to it. I will, the Lord wants to be known by His people. He wants, to, he wants to draw them near to Him to fellowship with His people, to be known and trusted by His people. And this is uh, really an overarching thread uh, all through Exodus. God saving His people and His desire is that they would be drawn into an intimate fellowship and knowledge of Him. An experiential knowledge of Him. When we talk about knowing God, we're talking, uh, we're not talking about an intellectual pursuit. We can know of God, but God is not asking to be known of. He's asking to be known. This is, this is one of the reasons why God introduces himself and says, my name is Right? This is, this is an, when we say my name is, this is an invitation to be known at least at some level. When you don't want to be known, you don't give your name. Am I right? So what does it mean to know God? Well, it's certainly not the same kind of knowing that we say you know your favorite musician or your favorite athlete or maybe a historical hero. You, you know them uh, to a certain degree by way of information that you've gathered. So you know of them. You can, you can maybe share some very interesting things about them. Uh, you might even know some of their likes or dislikes from what you've read. But the one thing you lack is uh, you do not have an intimate enough uh, understanding of that person to know to to accurately anticipate how they might respond in certain situations or what their thoughts are towards you. So we think not of, when we talk about knowing God, it is, uh, we, we ought not to, to, to think so much about knowing of someone like, like you might know, uh, like I might know of uh, you know, some of my, my favorite uh, heroes throughout history. Um, I know of them. I know interesting things about them. There are things that that really inspire me about what they've done. But I don't know them in a way where I I could predict to you what they would think about this or that um, or or what their thoughts would be towards me. Um, But there are relationships where I do have that kind of relationship. Uh, my, My parents, my brother, my wife, my children, um, my closest friends. These are relationships where you see a look in the eye and you know what it means. There's, there's a way that my mother can say things and I know she's saying stuff that she's not saying, right? 
there's that relationship of knowing someone. You, you, you understand this. God is inviting us to be known. He is, he's inviting us into a knowledge of Himself where He may be known like that. Where, where we can know what God's going to think about this or that or the other thing. Where we can know God's thoughts towards us. Where we have an experiential relationship with Him. So the question I think here that we need to ask is what, what, is, what is required to know God? Um, I, now I'm going to actually, um, it, it, it was interesting to me that, that Kevin shared uh, the classic Pilgrim's Progress this morning because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a theological classic, um, more modern than Pilgrim's Progress, but it's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, this is a mouthful, right? So this is like a Thanksgiving dinner um, if, you, if you're looking for just plunging into some uh, really uh, understanding of what it means to know God for who He is. Uh, and, and, and Packer says some things in here that I'm going to kind of borrow from because I think he just, uh, well, as Kevin said, he's, he's much wiser than I am. I mean, I, I, he's one of my, um, he's one of my uh, theological heroes. And uh, you see within his um, understanding of God, not just one who knows of God, because maybe he studied the scriptures and can spout off facts about him, but one who knows him and is passing on a knowledge of him that others may know him in that way as well. And so, um, so here's what... So we're going to work our way through that. Uh, I would really encourage you to, uh, to read through this. Uh, this is the library's copy, and I'll be putting it back. But I bet you you can find Pilgrim's Progress too. So we have a library over here that I would encourage you to uh, take a look at. There's some really good stuff in there. So here's the first thing. What is, it requi- what is required for, uh, for to know God? Well, the first thing is this. Uh, and these first four Really, all five points come from what Packer writes in, in his book here. Uh, and I think he's spot on. And, and the first one is a lis- listening to and receiving God's word. So God is speaking through his word. If we are to know him, we must listen and receive it. Um, Mark chapter 4, verse 20, Jesus tells a parable uh, about some soils. And there's four different types of soil where the seed of God's word is sown. And in one of the types of soil, the, the seed is actually received by the soil. And it produces incredible fruit. And, um, and, and so in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, Jesus says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So the type of listening and receiving that we need to do with God's Word is the type where it actually gets embedded in us and starts producing something within us. If uh, The other examples Jesus gives, one of them is that it falls out just on a hard path where it's just trampled underfoot. And the seed never has a chance. The seed fell upon the ground, but it wasn't received by the ground. Um, there were other examples where the seed is, it, it's, it's sort, of, sort of kind of received by the ground, but there's too much competition for the seed uh, that choke it out. Okay, so, but, but here, God is inviting us to listen to Him, listen to His Word, and then let it take root within us. To let it stir the depths of who we are when God speaks. To recognize who it is that speaks to us when we open His Word. Our Creator. Our Judge. Our Savior. The second thing is this. Paying attention to God's nature and character that gets revealed through Scripture. Uh, last week, uh, Randy shared with us a message from Psalm 8. Uh, turn there with me, if you would. 
So paying attention to God's nature and character revealed through His Word. If you want to know someone, you pay attention to how they respond to different things. You pay attention to how they treat others. You pay attention to how they handle stressful things or, or times of suffering or, or, or exciting news. You pay attention to that stuff. Psalm 8, one of the things that I love about the Psalms is you see that in the psalmists. If there's anything that the psalmists do well, it's they pay, they've paid attention to God's nature and character. And what we see in the psalm is a reflection of that intimate knowledge and understanding. So what Randy uh, presented to us last week uh, and went through, um, listen to the words of the psalmist again and think about this psalmist has he paid attention to who God is? How God has revealed Himself? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Doesn't it just pop out? When you read this, you, it, it, it becomes clear that the psalmist knows who he's talking about. Not just knows of the Lord, but knows the Lord by experience, a, an intimate knowledge of Him. How awesome would it be if when you and I speak of the Lord, we speak of Him like this. Maybe not always in poetic language like this, but with a, a, a language that reveals that we don't just know of Him, we know Him. Kind of like the disciples, were, it was noted that the disciples uh, had been with Jesus. Like Those around the disciples could tell, these guys have been with Jesus. Can, can, can the world tell that we've been with Jesus? Can the world tell that we know God when we speak of Him? When Jesus presented the Scriptures in the synagogue, the people were amazed because they were like, this guy teaches with a, with, with a type of authority and knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures that we've never heard before. Why is that? Because He is the very Word of God. These are His words that He presents to the people. There's a reason Jesus teaches like nobody else. It's because He's revealing His own words. To know God like this. This is how God desires to be known with that intimate understanding and knowledge. Here's the third thing required to know God. Accepting His invitations and obeying His commands. He is, he is uh, continually inviting us into things. Inviting us to pray. Inviting us to serve. Inviting us to give. Inviting us to teach, to help, to meditate. Inviting us to repent. He's inviting us into deeper relationship with Him. How do we respond to that? Well, if we're to know God... It requires not just receiving the invitation, but also showing up to the party. Right? Just because you receive an invitation to a party doesn't mean you're in intimate fellowship with those who've invited you. That fellowship begins when you take them up on that invitation and you enter into whatever they've invited you to. The Lord is inviting us into things. Are we stepping into that? Going, stepping deeper walking in further on into that invitation and obeying His commands. The moment we begin to put up our hand and, and, or, or kind of dig in our feet or draw a line in the sand and, and sort of uh, in, in our soul say, uh, I'll go this far and no further, that's the moment when we begin to say to the Lord, we don't really want to know you. 
I'm sufficient with having a knowledge of you. And, and, and I hope that that will save me. But I don't really want to know you. God is ever inviting us deeper. Are we stepping into that and obeying? James chapter 1, verse 22 says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You can know about God, but until it provokes in you a response that, that begins to change the way you think, the way you desire, and the way you act and speak, you're only a hearer of the word and you're deceiving yourself. You can quote all sorts of passages. Uh, you can even uh, teach some passage of Scripture and sound like you know what you're talking about. You can even start quoting the Greek and the Hebrew. And you still may just be looking at Jesus through a, through a looking glass and have no experiential knowledge of who He really is. Step further in and obey His commands. The fourth thing is this. Recognize with joy and thanksgiving that God has drawn near to you and is drawing you near to Him. Consider that. Um, God is drawing you to Himself. Look at how He presents Himself here to the Jews in Exodus. God is doing the work. Here of, of the tabernacle, the design, the consecration of the tabernacle, the establishment of the priesthood, all of that is by His design, by His implementation, so that He may be known. God is drawing near in a physical way here in Exodus, but in a, in a spiritual reality, God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and in the Holy Spirit, the presence of God among us and in us. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, if God doesn't come from heaven to earth, the Jews remain wandering in the desert alone. If God does not come to heaven, uh, from heaven to earth here and establish His presence among His people, uh, there, there's no intimate fellowship with Him. If the Word does not become flesh and dwell among us, we're a people lost and wandering in a desert. Spiritually speaking. But God has come from heaven to earth. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. He has made His presence known among us and made His dwelling with us. Here's the fifth thing, and this really ties into that fourth point. God must allow Himself to be known. What's required, and maybe this is at the top of the list, should be number one instead of number five. What's required for God to be known is for Him to allow Himself to be known. Think about that. Uh, I kind of let off there with, you know, when you introduce yourself and you say, my name is, it's an invitation to be known. If you don't want to be known, you don't share your name. God has clearly demonstrated that His desire is to be known. On His terms, but to be known. His desire is that we would each come into an intimate knowledge and, and understanding of Him. The biggest barrier, really, to knowing one another is whether or not the other person wants to be known. That is usually, or I mean, that is definitely one of the biggest barriers to getting to know someone. If there's a resistance... Uh, a wall being set up where, where they're not going to allow you to, to see parts of their life or know parts of who they are, then, then you really you can only know that person insofar as they will let you know them. God has laid it out for Himself to be known. He has given us His Word. He has shown up throughout history. He has sent His Son for us to bear the weight of 
His punishment against our sin. God has demonstrated that He desires to be known more than anybody in your life. Even even the people who are closest to you have not demonstrated a desire to be known as completely as the Lord has has demonstrated to us. Now we obviously do not have the mind of God and we can't comprehend all there is to be known of God. But He has invited us to know Him as fully as we can know Him. Especially this side of heaven. Look at uh, in verse 46 there in, in Exodus 29. It says, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. He desires to be known. All this that's going on in Exodus is so that His people will know Him. And it's a knowing that, that goes beyond just uh, even an intimate understanding But in this relationship with God, it's also a knowing that He who made me also preserves me, also protects me, also provides for me. That there is a confidence established in because we know Him, we rest in that uh, relationship. We draw encouragement from that relationship. Much like... um, uh, the way that, that you know a close friend or the way that you knew a parent or know a parent or the way that, that you, uh, uh, especially we see it in that child-parent relationship. When a child knows their parent, um, and that child also draws a comfort from that parent's presence. There is a type of peace that exists um, when, a, when a child is with their parent. Or just that, that having that closeness in that relationship, that intimate knowledge of one another. Matthew chapter 11, verse uh, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. God revealing himself. Remember, Jesus said, uh, hey, uh, nobody's, nobody's going to, know God unless uh, the Father draws them. Verse 26, Yes, uh, Father, for such was your gracious will. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me. So you catch that? So Jesus says, Hey, uh, I know the Father, the Father knows me, and nobody knows us unless unless I choose to reveal myself to Him. And then what does He say right immediately after that? Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he says, you can't know me unless I want to be known by you. Unless you receive an invitation from me to be known, you can't know me. And then immediately says, you're invited to know me. Come, draw near. Surrender yourself to me that you may know me. This is what I'm like. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. God reveals Himself to us through Christ and invites us to know Him for ourselves, to walk with Him, to learn from Him, to trust Him, to rely on Him, to be filled with the joy of experiencing His goodness and His kindness and His grace and His gentleness. John chapter 10, Jesus presents Himself as the Good Shepherd, makes a comparison between a Good Shepherd and and the way He cares for the sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus says, my sheep, um, they hear my voice. How do they know it's his voice? They know it's His voice because they know Him. 
see the sheep spend time with the shepherd. The way they know to respond to the sh- their shepherd's voice is because they've spent time with him and, and, and the shepherd has demonstrated uh, a, 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 a good shepherding nature with them, that he's watched over them, that he leads them. Jesus, ultimately so, has demonstrated that he leads us into the good places, that, that he is protecting of us, that he is providing of us, that he is our Savior, our good shepherd. And so the sheep that spend time with him, they know his voice. There's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of voices in here. I won't share them all with you, you know. There's reminds me of uh, the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy and the lady sitting on the airplane looks to the guy, person next to her and goes, do the voices inside my head bother you? They do now. <laughs> there are a lot of voices. How do we know which voice we're supposed to listen to? Well, obviously we know we need to listen to Jesus. But how do we hear His voice above all others? We spend time with Him. We, we walk with these five things being lived out in our life. That we know His voice. Different from all others. That when He speaks, we know it's Him. You know, when your mom yelled at you across the playground or wherever, you knew it was her voice. Right? You, you know that voice. That sound, you know it. My question for you today is, do you know Him? Can you hear His voice from all the others? Does it stand out to you as the, as, as, as the one that rises above all the others in your life? Do you know Him? Do you hear your shepherd's voice? Well, it may be that you've never actually given your life to Him. You've never actually entrusted Him with the watch care of your own soul. His invitation is for you today to come to Him, to give yourself fully to Him. All of you. Body, mind, soul, and spirit. Um, To take all of who you are and place it in the hands of the One who has demonstrated that his, his desire, after creating you and after seeing your sin more than anybody else sees your sin, in fact, the Lord sees your sin more clearly than you do. He sees the corruption of your soul more clearly than even you do. And yet, He says, come to me. And yet, He says, I want to be known by you. So, He's seen the worst of who you are that you don't even Uh, fully understand and says, I want to know you and be known by you. I would encourage you today, if you haven't done so, to, to bow your head before him and say, Lord, I want to know you and I want to be known by you. I want to receive the words that you speak and walk in them and not just be a hearer of it. I want to receive the forgiveness that you gave your life for and not just know about this stuff. I want to experience it for myself to walk with you. And for those of you who have given your life to Christ, is now a journey of cultivating that relationship with God where you learn to listen and receive His Word, to pay attention to His nature and character being revealed to you, to accept the invitations that He gives to you and to walk in obedience with Him, to recognize with joy and thanksgiving that He's drawing you nearer to Him and, present, and drawing nearer to you in the process. So let us walk in these things that we would be... Uh, that we would be able to speak as one who truly knows God and not just a bunch of stuff about Him. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for all that You have done for us. Father, we are thankful that, Lord, who are we? What is man that You would be mindful of him? Who am I that You 
would make yourself known to me. That you would desire to be known by me. God, we thank you that that is the situation that you've brought us to. That you created us and now you desire for us to to walk intimately with you. To be comforted by your constant presence. To hear your voice. And to have that voice not only lead us and protect us, but also be a voice of, of, that brings us peace in the midst of turbulent waters and storms in our life. A voice that reminds us that the wrath of God has been uh, diverted from us and placed upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we, we thank you for all of this, and we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to read to you, uh, leave you with uh, some of J.I. Packer's words on knowing God. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. My hope and prayer is that you and I together would know God in that way. Lord, bless and keep you.